0: Welcome to Classics, Cana Academy's podcast on classic works of literature, film, and art. I'm your host, Andrew Zorneman. In this episode, we explore one of the most heralded works in classical literature, Plato's Republic. Joining me for our discussion is my favorite interviewee, Jeanette Dussel Zorneman, director of instruction and a master teacher at Cana Academy. We recently posted Jeanette's new guide, leading a seminar on Plato's Republic. It's a wonderful tool for teachers. You can find it at our website, www.canaacademy.org. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Classics. Jeanette and I recorded our discussion from our home in Falls Church, Virginia. Well, good afternoon, Jeanette. I might normally say welcome, but of course you and I are sitting in our library at home and we're about to engage in one of our spousal podcasts, but Anyway, good afternoon, Jeanette. Good afternoon. All right, here we go. Um, We're talking today about your latest guide, uh, this one on Plato's Republic, so it's a big deal. But before we get started and talk about the guide proper, I think it'd be really helpful for everyone if you could tell us something about Plato's life. Where did he live? Um, What years did he live?
1: Plato was born in Athens. Uh, probably about 427 BC and he died sometime around 347 BC. He was probably about 80 years old when he died. It looks like the name Plato was likely a nickname and that his given name was Aristocles. He was born into an aristocratic family and he was expected to assume some kind of political authority in the city, but something very dramatic interrupted his plans and that was his encounter with the man named Socrates. Some scholars believe that Plato, as a young child, even probably knew Socrates, but that he only came into sustained intellectual contact as a young man. And it's obvious from his dialogues, especially those in which Socrates is the protagonist, that Plato thought of Socrates as the most just man he ever knew. Now, Socrates was not an aristocrat, but he was a public man with a reputation for independent thought and practice. And when Athens tried and executed him in 399 BC, Plato's path really changed. It looks like a lot of Socrates' disciples scattered to foreign parts after the execution, and Plato was one of them. He likely traveled through Italy and Greece and then eventually returned in 388 BC to establish the famous Academy in a grove outside the city. And there, he gathered a great many important contemporary scholars, among them, some of his generation's greatest mathematicians. And he began to teach young men who would hopefully someday assume positions of authority in the city. He also took at least three consequential journeys to, the, uh, to Syracuse, and he got involved in their political affairs, but it looks like it was a failed experiment mostly what we remember Plato for are these dialogues, perhaps as many as 30, and the Republic is one of his greatest.
0: Well, What year was the Republic written? Uh,
1: da- dating the dialogues is always a bit tricky because scholars disagree about the dates and the chronology and even the authenticity of some of these dialogues, but there does seem to be some general consensus that the Republic likely belongs to what scholars typically call his middle years, and that would put the composition of the Republic at about 375 BC. But the narrative time of the dialogue is very important. It's probably 421. That's before the death of Socrates. So that would put Socrates' narrative age closer to 50, And as is often the case in Plato's dialogue, Socrates is the main protagonist. So approaching 50 explains, I think, some of his character's interest at the start of the dialogue in hearing from his elder host, Cephalus, about what it's like to grow old. And I've always found it really intriguing that this dialogue is bookended with these two competing images. It begins with an elder Cephalus preparing for death, by making these sacrifices to what are increasingly disreputable gods of the pantheon. And then it ends with another myth, a myth of judgment, which is predicated on human choice. And contrary to the myth of Gyges, which we hear about later, uh, no deed goes unwatched in the uh, the last myth.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the dramatic date is 421 different from the date of the composition itself. So what's the dramatic context of the dialogue, and why do you think Plato situated the dialogue in 421?
1: Oh, that's that's a great question. I think in many ways, if 421 is the accurate uh, date, uh, narrative time, it makes a lot of sense. It's a perfect time frame for this particular dialogue. This dialogue is so preoccupied with issues of justice and power, and 421 would put it during the Peace of Nicias, which was a short-lived peace treaty that interrupted the Peloponnesian War. And for our listeners who are not aware of the Peloponnesian War, uh, that was a an ugly, protracted conflict between Sparta and its colonies on one side and Athens and its colonies on the other. And the conflict lasted with some interruptions from 431 to 404 BC. And some of the interlocutors in this dialogue have returned from fighting in that war, and all of them have some vested interest in the affairs surrounding the war. Some scholars, for instance, believe that the medic, Cephalus, whom I just mentioned a minute ago, was an arms manufacturer from Syracuse, which is intriguing on a lot of levels, not least of which Syracuse is where the Athenian forces ultimately collapsed. And although I think Athens' initial participation in the war didn't I don't think it sprang from decadence but it did eventually evoke a great deal of Athenian corruption. Uh, let's you know while it hasn't yet occurred in the narrative time of the dialogue the raising and execution and then enslavement of Milos clearly informs the dialogue as does the unjust execution of Socrates and the disgraceful Mytilenean debate which Thucydides dates at 427 has already occurred by the narrative time of the dialogue. And in, as with most wars, the cultural casualties of the Peloponnesian War are uh, really evident. We've got this continuing deterioration in faith in the gods. There's an increase in relativism and nihilism. There's a loss, loss of uh, faith in the institutions of the city. And then there's this assembly that seems to be awash in a kind of new brand new kind of politically ruthless um, character and uh, these characters seem to be trained by the Sophist teachers of rhetoric which adds another whole layer of corruption to the city so a lot is at stake politically and spiritually which for Plato are deeply related I would say that uh, 421 is is a time of great crisis actually in a city that's in crisis and I would argue that a great many uh, references to that crisis saturate the Republic.
0: That term you use, uh, cultural uh, destruction, is a really good one. We learn so much from the study of ancient Greece about uh, the impact of war and the uh, kind of internal disruptions that occur and and create such disorder. The the Republic is really complex text.
1: Yes, it is. And
0: it's complex in structure, and it's complex in content, yet you are an advocate, a long-time advocate of reading it with secondary students. Why is that? Why why read this very complex text with, with high school students?
1: I think it is important for secondary students to read. There's such, it's such a unique literary form, and I think The Republic is probably one of his greatest dialogues because of the issues he addresses. They're so timeless and varied. He does, of course, make philosophical arguments, but he ornaments those arguments with lovely myths and parables and metaphors and allegories. And the dialogue itself is laden with a lot of sophisticated foreshadowing and even some suspense and character development. It's just a remarkably masterfully layered text. Sometimes, you know, Plato will plant ideas at the beginning that only come to full development later in the dialogue, and that intertextual referencing is a deeply satisfying reading experience, especially for young people. One of the fantastic elements of this dialogue is that the individuals making the arguments so beautifully reflect their arguments in their characters. So the two young men, Glaucon and Adeimantus, are portrayed as young idealistic men who've turned to socrates for help in resisting the cynicism of the sophists and their youthful exuberance is just so beautifully displayed in the text and thrasymachus on the other hand behaves with just the kind of savage uh, kind of savage nature uh, a man who embraces the right of the strongest would harbor and I think all of these elements and devices, literary devices, are tremendously pleasing to secondary students, and that makes the Republic just a perfect introduction to philosophy.
0: Your guide is uh, titled uh, Leading a Seminar on Plato's Republic, so it's, it's a guide expressly for seminar, utilizing the pedagogy of the seminar method, which you have a lot to say about. You've got a wonderful guide, a lively, a lively kind of learning. Um, why are you keen that students discuss the Republic and not merely hear a set of lectures on it. Is the seminar experience somehow uniquely well-suited to studying Plato's Republic? And um, experiencing what Plato wants his readers to experience, it really, that happens the best, you think, inside a seminar? I,
1: sp- uh, addressing lectures, uh, I would really enjoy attending a series of lectures on Plato's Republic, and I think it would be good for students to uh, have that experience too. It's great to hear a scholar develop and sustain an interpretation over the course of a lecture. But as you say, I, I do think it is important for secondary students to have their first encounter with the Republic in the seminar format. Plato allows his readers to trot down blind alleys and sometimes even dead ends. And that's because he knows there's something worthwhile in thinking through an argument until it collapses. And sometimes he allows his protagonist, Socrates, to be taken on important tangents. I would not, for instance, have begun a dialogue ostensibly dedicated to justice and imagined that I would end up spending so much time debating the role of storytelling and music in a young person's life. But there it is. I think we should remember that this is not an exercise in scholarship at the first cut. It's really an exercise in ethics and, by extension, politics. Socrates uh, remarks in several different iterations throughout the dialogue that this dialogue is about nothing less than how one should live. And I think that's why it's so important for students to have that first encounter with the text unencumbered by a lot of heavy scholarship. I think it's important to allow them to follow the arguments where they lead and to discover why some arguments fail and some succeed. Also, the structure of the dialogue, as you pointed out, is extraordinarily impressive. Learning how to tangle with such an architecturally complex structure is in itself an excellent intellectual exercise. Some Scholars argue that the dialogues are successors to the tragic performances at Athens, and that Plato has effectively relocated the drama and its spiritual results to the interior soul of the individual reading the dialogue, and that whatever buttonholing Socrates was engaged in is no longer possible in the public forum. If for no other reason, it's dangerous. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that approach. And I think if you allow the students to have that kind of experience, they'll find the most compelling arguments and be moved by the dramatic elements that accompany them. And they'll hold on to them. There's, incidentally, quite a bit of scholarship on why Plato wrote dialogues, and I would just encourage our listeners to look at the selected bibliography at the close of the guide for some of that material.
0: Plato presses his readers to think at various levels, and it's such a rich text in that regard. The Republic um, has rich content that makes us think about big matters, like uh, you know, really difficult areas of learning, including metaphysics and epistemology. As you just indicated in your last answer, in your guide, you seem to place a strong focus or strong emphasis on the dialogue as an exercise in ethics. Mm. Yes. What sorts of things does he specifically discuss in that realm? Can you give us a quick tour of the text as you read
1: it? I don't think I can give you a quick tour, but um, let me first... I'll give you some kind of tour. Let me address your first remark. Plato is concerned with epistemology and metaphysics in the Republic, but those topics arise in the context of the ethical and political action I was just talking about. Of course, an individual has to know how to determine what justice is before acting justly, and we need only consult history to see uh, how many times we've committed unjust actions in the name of justice. So yes, knowledge matters. The immediate and precipitating questions here have to do with justice. So what is justice? What is happiness? Does living a just life make for a happier life? And Thrasymachus, early on in the first book, elevates that latter question to its central location in the dialogue. Is there some connection between being good and being happy? And as I said, these are the questions that launch the dialogue, but in their efforts to answer these questions, they, the interlocutors embark on a discussion of a lot of other authority issues. I recently took a quick canvas for the guide, actually, uh, to collect the problems that he tackles in the Republic, and the list is astonishingly wide and quite various. He weaves them all together into this gigantic symphonic whole. So I'll just give you a quick list. This is a taste from the guide. Here are some of the questions they address. Are laws and what we call justice simply the result of human decision, artifice, and power? Or can laws be weighed in light of a normative order that transcends and weighs the justice of human laws? Is Thrasymachus correct when he says that justice is what the strong man calls the laws he makes that serve his private interests? Or is justice a compact, as Glaucon suggests, between weak individuals who prefer to act according to their true nature by taking advantage of other people? Plato puts that very seductive myth of the invisibility ring of Gyges in Glaucon's mouth, and a lot of our students will recognize and be delighted uh, to see uh, an ancient iteration of a myth they're familiar with, uh, mostly through the Lord of the Rings. Are human beings, in fact, natural antagonists? as Glaucon seems to suggest. Are they they, uh, individuals who will take advantage of each other as soon as they can? Or are they fundamentally drawn toward one another in a kind of community, and if so, how? Socrates entertains these and offers fresh and compelling alternative accounts of human nature, of law, and he also has a very intricate and beautiful discussion of the nature of true myth. In what becomes the central analogy of the text, Plato has Socrates liken the city to a soul, which raises uh, lots of good questions regarding the correspondence between the character of a people and the character of a regime and the role that culture plays in developing both. Book eight is just a devastating portrait of what looks to be an irresistible and irreversible decline in both. And it reads as if it could have been written today. He also dwells on the abuse and the manipulation of language and its corrosive effects on political debate, especially in democracies, and the fragility of political order in general. But I think some of his most provocative and insightful passages dwell on the importance of storytelling and music and shaping a human being and the best possible kind of education for children. His attack on Homer and the poets and their vision of the gods is withering and courageous for his time. That leads to a a pretty intense discussion of censorship, actually. Students will benefit from discussing that. He also examines human choice and responsibility, and he has a great deal to say about uh, the distortions of wealth and fame and honor. He even manages to touch on the relationship between the sexes and the salutary nature of punishment, the division of labor, and even the role of manners in politics. So that's a large and that's just some of it. I haven't covered all of it, but I could go on. But I just, let's just suffice it to say that Plato had an agile mind, and that mind ranged quite widely over a lot of other topics. All of those topics, as you can see, would involve knowledge toward human action. And many of them are predicated on some notion of the gods and the immortality of the soul, which are epistemological and metaphysical concerns. Incidentally, I would just say for our listeners' sake, I find a lot of these topics are of particular interest to older secondary students. They are already thinking about these matters, and Plato gives them a way to organize their thoughts uh, towards uh, good, good, good conclusions, concrete conclusions. In that respect, the Republic is the perfect primer for uh, philosophy. Almost all the big philosophical questions are seated in the Republic.
0: I can tell you from uh, visiting schools all around the country, um, so many of them I, I get to uh, do have the students reading Plato's Republic, especially at the high school level. There's a widespread practice I want to take note of where uh, teachers uh, have their students extract sections of the Republic and study them as standalones. So I see this especially with the famous cave allegory, which is widely taught on its own. So I I wanted to know what you think of that practice. What do you think about taking the cave allegory and reading it as a standalone um, piece of literature? And, And why do you favor reading the entire dialogue?
1: By and large, I favor reading an original text in its entirety, in large part because I think we owe some reverence to the author who labored over the work. If we think this is a worthy work to read, we should see the whole thing. It's not my work to cannibalize. It's Plato's work, and it's my job to read that passage, say the cave allegory, in light of the entire context. And I think this is especially true uh, with, uh, in our treatment of Plato because locating the authorial voice is already difficult. Plato often includes the names of his relatives and even other prominent contemporaries in his dialogues. For instance, Glaucon and Adiamantus are Plato's elder brothers, and Thrasymachus. Was indeed a contemporary sophist, but Plato never wrote his dialogues in the first person and he never made himself a character in his dialogues. You might say Plato disappears, so his voice is difficult to tease out, and that makes the dialogues, I think, especially pleasurable and rich. I'm not suggesting he has no voice, I'm just suggesting it's difficult to discover sometimes, and sometimes it's deeper than even the characters he's written, and it's sewn into the whole structure of the text, how the text moves uh, all the way to its conclusion. That makes reading the entire dialogue especially important. I, as I remarked earlier, he often seeds an earlier passage with something he wants to develop later, and it's good to stick with the whole piece to get to the full answer.
0: So I, I think I understand what you're saying, but how does how does your approach shape uh, your approach to the cave allegory?
1: No, uh, it is it is beautiful, and I can see why people pull it out. It's such a a beautiful piece. I know that philosophy courses like to pilfer the cave allegory to introduce students to epistemology, for instance. And I think that's actually how I first encountered the allegory. But again, I think reading it in context leads to other richer Directions. It occurs in Book Seven, which is just after the interlocutors have discussed the divided line, which was this very ornate and well developed educational curriculum for the formation of the city's leaders. And that divided line maps onto the cave allegory. And the cave allegory occurs right before Book Eight, which is that stunning elaboration on the deterioration of the regimes of the city and the soul. Uh, we talked about earlier. In many respects, the cave ends up looking a little bit like Athens. So the cave allegory is about more than epistemological concerns. It's a parable, I think, of a terrible loss for the city and its citizens who are prisoners to what is false and to what is spoken across the city and in its assembly. Socrates likens that assembly to a ship of savage, unruly sailors who would take control of the ship and run it aground. And the sophists are there in that cave, too. They're manipulating the young and awarding prizes and honors to the most savage but eloquent liars. And Socrates is likely that prisoner released from his chains and awakened to the truth. He's that philosopher who is later mocked in courts uh, for his defense of true justice. And then, of course, he's killed by the assembly. All of that comes up in the context of the cave. I think the parable of the cave, in other words, loses some of its deeper meaning without its proper context. We should pay very close attention to the acceleration of imagery and action, I think, from books 5 through 10. It's almost overwhelming how fast the parables and the analogies are piling up. There's a lot of kind of a kinetic movement or motion towards the climax of that final myth. And I think it's worth seeing all that mount up to the very end.
0: That's really helpful. I really like the way you situate that between um, the implications for uh, the educational program and the implications for the different kind of uh, political regimes. Yeah. That's a great way to do that. One thing that readers tend, or I should say, one of the things that makes somebody either love or hate Socrates and the dialogues in general from Plato is that Plato stages uh, Socrates in a way that um, most often we don't get definitive answers. How do you reassure your students that the difficult, sometimes open-ended journey that Plato takes us on is, in the end, a really good one?
1: I don't really agree with that vision of Plato's dialogues, especially the Republic. I think there are a lot of answers given that have to be evaluated, all of those questions that I asked just a few minutes ago uh, get answered in the text. Now we might not approve of some of those answers, and we might even disagree on whether Plato approves of those answers. But they are, in fact, answers. And I think we, uh, yeah, I think we should ch- take those answers seriously and evaluate them with the students.
0: You, well, now that you've uh, disproved the uh, premise of my question here, we'll, I don't know that we should continue or not. <laughs> we'll talk about this uh, over a glass of beer tonight. <clears throat> do you Do you have any suggestions for teachers who are about to embark on the teaching of the Republic?
1: Yes, I do. I um, I think the most important preparation for leading a seminar on any text, but especially the Republic, is to read the text carefully and have the encounter with the text that they want their students to have. With the Republic, I think it's very important to outline the text. While I was writing this guide, I found all kinds of old outlines in my files. Some of them were outlines from the first time I taught the text, and some of them were even from the last time I taught it. So it looks like I outlined it every time I taught it. And even if you think you're very familiar with the arguments, it's still important to rehearse them on paper in advance of a seminar so that you can lead the discussion with a kind of authority and, and a deft hand. You'll know when things are going to come up later, when imagery is going to pre- uh, be presented later that that um, is foreshadowed in the present. So outlining is important and careful preparation and reading of the text is very important. Second, I do recommend that anyone preparing to teach this text take some time to read Plato's Apology and at least parts of Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, especially those moments in Thucydides that are so instructive. The Melian Dialogue, which Thucydides, I think, dates to 416, and the Mytilenean Debate, which I think he dates at 427. You might even want to read the Pericles' uh, Oration and maybe the chapter on the Plague, and if uh, maybe the, um, I know, there's just some key moments in the Thucydides that he brings to um, such a vivid portrait. And, but, but if the teacher doesn't have time to read the Thucydides, or at least the entire account, they could select some of the important speeches and read those to see the decline in public discourse. And then they could um, uh, add to their understanding by reading Donald Kagan's History of the War or even those passages in NGL Hammond's History of Greece to fill in the gaps. Both of those resources I found very wonderful when I was younger. The students need some kind of background as well, so I would recommend, if they have not read Thucydides themselves, I think it's uh, important that the teacher assemble a crisp, short lecture that will give them a sense of the time in which these dialogues were being written. Third... I would encourage teachers to avoid using overly technical or philosophical language and Greek terminology. This is a great temptation for teachers of the ancients. Teachers like to show off what they know about their scholarly reading, but we should take our cue from Plato. He uses very simple language and common anecdotes and examples drawn from everyday life to illuminate his arguments. I've used Bloom's translation for this guide, and I've cited the footnotes that I think are absolutely necessary for a good understanding of the text. But generally, what the students need is on the page. And our job as teachers is to get the students' noses down into the text to unravel its arguments and the parables and their meaning. At the close of the guide that I just wrote, there are more than 30 substantive essay questions that address some of the larger issues that I think are at stake and if students can answer at least some of those and maybe all of them they've got a more than adequate account of this text so I I recommend teachers uh, read those questions in advance of of teaching the text and also I do think teachers should read commentary and I include some resources in the bibliography I'm just talking about how much of that to be brought into the classroom and I, I think very I think Really, teachers shouldn't bring scholarship into the classroom. They should try to make the encounter as direct as possible. Fourth, I recommend teachers take Plato's discussion of the arts seriously. I know all that talk about modes and rhythms is really confusing at first, but I think the topic itself is an especially important one for secondary students. Plato says the following about music in book three, quote, Isn't this why the rearing in music is most sovereign? Because rhythm and harmony, most of all, insinuate themselves into the inmost part of the soul and most vigorously lay hold of it in bringing grace with them. That's the end of that quotation. Students, I think, really benefit immensely from a discussion of the role of music and the arts in general. Is there music that is damaging to a human being in, in our language, in our culture? Are there movies? Are there stories we shouldn't watch, we shouldn't read? Are there dramatic roles we should refuse to enact or even view? I encourage teachers to prepare for this discussion very thoughtfully and think about what they can and want to accomplish in advance. It's not useful to put what you know are their favorites in the dock. That just makes you look like an old cranky teacher. I recommend rather uh, the teacher think carefully about what they think will turn their ears and eyes to beautiful music, beautiful drama, even beautiful fine arts. These are things that they may never encounter anywhere else. I put a list of samples in the guide to give teachers an idea of the kind of caliber of music I'm recommending. And fifth, I recommend getting together with other adults to read and discuss the Republic prior to teaching it. Just gathering together some friends and colleagues and practicing the arguments and uh, unraveling the analogies and the parables with other adults is just great training for leading a seminar. And then finally, this is a very practical recommendation. I think the teachers should familiarize the students with the names of the characters. Some of these names are very long and Greek, and the kids may never... Uh, have heard names like that before, so I suggest the teacher put those on the board and then rehearse some agreed-upon pronunciation. And similarly, I think the teacher needs to train the students on how to cite the text by book and um, book number and line number. Those are just two simple, practical uh, efforts at alleviating some of the fear students may have in looking at such a new genre.
0: Those are all really good practical tips and I'm so glad you've shared those. I want to wrap things up with a question about your passion for the text. And Your passion comes through. The guide is beautifully crafted and um, anyone reading it will immediately pick up on, on how much you love the text. But, but let's, let me ask you this final question. Do you have a favorite passage you'd like to share with our listeners?
1: Yes, I do. You know, Plato was such a lovely stylist. It's It's been said that he wrote dithyrambs and tragedies in his youth, and the Republic certainly exhibits that kind of facility with poetic devices. But in honor of our audience of teachers, I've chosen two lesser poetic passages. Uh, The first one, well, actually both of them tend towards our duties as teachers. The first one is from Book 6, and it's where Socrates is describing in a very intense passage the corrupting influence that sophists have on 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 the young when they teach them how to uh, speak in public and uh, he names the arenas of power where the young students will um, assume leadership in the opening line of this this is i think a good example of the worst kind of teacher so let me read to you this is from book six it begins uh, at approximately let's see, 490, 493, roughly. When many gathered together sit down in assemblies, courts, theaters, Army camps or any other common meeting of a multitude, and with a great deal of uproar, blame some of the things said or done and praise others, both in excess, shouting and clapping. And besides, the rocks and the very place surrounding them echo and redouble the uproar of blame and praise. Now, in such circumstances, what do you suppose is the state of the young man's heart? Or what kind of private education? will hold out for him and not be swept away by such blame and praise, and go borne by the flood where it tends, so that he'll say the same things are noble and base as they do, practice what they practice, and be such as they are. That each of the private wage earners whom these men call sophists educates in nothing other than these convictions of the many, which they opine when they are gathered together, and he calls this wisdom. It is just like the case of a man who learns by heart the angers and desires of a great strong beast he is rearing, how it should be approached and how taken hold of, when and as a result of what it becomes most difficult or most gentle, and particularly under what conditions it is accustomed to utter its several sounds. And in turn, what sort of sounds uttered by another make it tame and angry When he has learned all of this from associating and spending time with the beast, he calls it wisdom, and organizing it as an art, he turns to teaching. Knowing nothing in truth about which of these convictions and desires is noble or base or good or evil or just or unjust, he applies all these names following the great animal's opinions, calling what delights it good and what vexes it. Isn't that a great passage?
0: That is a great passage. It's a great way to end our discussion today.
1: Well, I'm going to read you one more, a little more upbeat.
0: Yeah, let's go. Go Let's go for the second one. Uh,
1: This second one is is from Book 10. And this is where Socrates finally confronts the myth of the Ring of Gyges, and I think uh, eliminates it and addresses what human beings can and should be in the right circumstances with the right teachers. In this analogy, the soul looks a lot like the mythical creature Glaucus, who has to be brought up out of the water and uh, cleaned up. And I, I so appreciate his description of the natural affinities of the soul here. So he's speaking with Glaucon here. This is at um, 4. This is Book 10 at 6. 11E through 612A, I think it is. But Glaucon, one must look elsewhere to its love of wisdom and recognize what it lays hold of and with what sort of things it longs to keep company on the grounds that it is akin to the divine and immortal and what is always and what it would become like if it were to give itself entirely to this longing and were brought by this impulse out of the deep ocean in which it now is and the rocks and the shells were hammered off those which, because it feasts on earth, have grown around it in a wild, earthy, and rocky profusion as a result of those feasts that are called happy. And then one would see its true nature.
0: Well, I'm, I'm glad we carved out a little bit more time there on the podcast to hear that one. That's wonderful. Well done, Jeanette. Uh, the guide is Leading a Seminar on Plato's Republic by Jeanette DeSelles Orneman. You can find it at our shop www.kanaacademy.org and at Amazon. Thanks, Jeanette. You're welcome. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this episode. Classics is a production of the Kana Academy Podcast Network. Our editor and producer is Helen DeSell-Zorneman. We have more great episodes on our website and new ones arriving soon. So please join us again and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. I'm Andrew Zornemann, your host. I look forward to meeting you again on Classics.